Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. We're returning to the movies in this episode, digging into the first of David Lean's canonical epic films, The Bridge on the River Kwai. A defining film, both in the history of war movies and in cinema in general, The Bridge on the River Kwai is as grand as it was excessively ambitious. The film's legacy is heavily tainted by its behind-the-scenes dramas. Its production was tumultuous, to say the least, with borderline soap-operatic feuds between every party imaginable. Producers pulled the plug. Actors had a go at the director. The director went back at the actors, along with the cinematographer. The writer was blacklisted, and then the writer brought in to do the redraft was also blacklisted. This movie faced obstacle after obstacle, all to come out on top. How did that happen? Why is it still acclaimed today? And who exactly was David Lean? Let's find out. Oscars night, 1958. Thirteen years since the bombing of Hiroshima, and multiple Japanese actors are up for awards. Japanese actress Miyoshi Umeki makes history, winning Best Supporting Actress for her role in Sayonara, a film about dual romances between Japanese women and US soldiers, one of whom is played by Marlon Brando. Her win, while unprecedented, doesn't come as a huge surprise. Miyoshi Umeki was somewhat known in America, her persona was heavily Americanized, with newspapers running articles on how she grew up singing US jazz standards. In many ways, she was almost as famous as a singer as she was as an actress. Through appearing ever gracious and culturally acclimatizing, Miyoshi is able to overcome racist attitudes still palpably lingering from World War II and win a massive award. In contrast to this is the biggest success story of the night. The Bridge on the River Kwai sweeps the awards, winning nearly every category it's nominated for, including Best Picture, Director, Actor, Adapted Screenplay and Editing. One of the few it doesn't win is Best Supporting Actor, which goes to Red Buttons, one of the soldiers in Sayonara. The Bridge on the River Kwai's representative in the Supporting Actor category is Japanese actor Sisue Hayakawa, who plays one of the film's villains, Colonel Saito. Originally famous in the US as a silent film actor, this marks a career high for Hayakawa. In contrast to Umeki, he was able to break down those barriers by adhering to the completely opposite end of stereotypes, through being a menacing, unflinching war villain, playing on those aforementioned post-war attitudes rather than against them. The two serve as searing examples of the cultural landscape. At the time, the bulk of America saw Japan from two lenses. The first, a modern colony of wannabe Americans, the second as the country of villainous soldiers they were just at war against. 
Elsewhere in the Oscars ceremony, different drama was unfolding. When The Bridge on the River Kwai wins Best Original Screenplay, someone has to come up and take credit for it. The only problem is, who? The first screenplay adaptation of the novel was written by Carl Foreman. Six years earlier, he had been called before the House Un-American Activities Committee, where he testified that he had been a member of the Communist Party in his youth. After refusing to give names of other members, he was labelled an uncooperative witness and placed on the Hollywood blacklist. Despite the support of numerous Hollywood stars and filmmakers, including the actor Gary Cooper, he was unable to get much work off the ground and ultimately ended up exiled to England. There, David Lean approached him to do a draft of the screenplay based on the original novel. Ultimately, Lean had a falling out with him and decided the script needed another pass, finding a replacement through Carl Foreman's own recommendation in writer Michael Wilson. The issue there, however, was that Wilson was also blacklisted from Hollywood. He had fled to France and had made a new career in European films along with doing uncredited work on Western pictures. But his script was closer to what David Lean had in mind, and after a sizable number of changes written by Lean himself, was what was actually shot. So, cutting back to the Oscar ceremony, we find three possible winners for the Best Screenplay Award. The two blacklisted writers, who clearly couldn't attend, and Lean himself, who was uncredited. Ultimately, the Academy goes with option D, the original author of the novel, Pierre Boulle. Of course, the novel was originally written in French, and Pierre Boulle contributed not a single word to the final film script. Even at the time, the public was fully aware of this, and the media comment on it. The whole farce will not find a resolution until decades later, when Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson will both be awarded their rightful Oscars posthumously. So, travelling back from the end of the process to the start, Pierre Boulle's novel was first published in English in 1954. Based loosely on real events and people Boulle had actually met as a prisoner of war in Thailand during World War II, the novel told the story of a group of British prisoners of war being forced by Japanese imperial soldiers to work on the so-called Death Railway. The Death Railway was the colloquial name for the Thai-Burma Railway, which was built between 1940 and 1943 by the Japanese army, civilian recruits and allied prisoners of war. It was built in order to supply reinforcements and supplies to the then tumultuous Burma campaign and was a key strategic tool in the war. The titular The Bridge on the River Kwai, outlined in Bull's novel, did exist, but in a very different way than outlined. The river was not actually called Kwai, though frequently mispronounced as such by Allied soldiers. 
Its real name was the Meiklong River, and there was a crucial bridge there. Unlike in the novel and film, it was not exploded into little bits by ground soldiers. It was actually the target of multiple aerial bombings during World War II. Nowadays, the bridge is used for civilian purposes, and the name of the Mei Klong has been changed retroactively. It's now known as the Kwai Yai River in response to the film and novel. How many works of fiction have literally changed the world around them? So what actually happens in the bridge on the River Kwai? Here to help explain is our guest, film historian and blogger, Wendy Whittick. British troops are taken prisoner by the Japanese during World War II and instructed to build a bridge to span the River Kwai. Colonel Nicholson, who is a senior British officer, is a man of rigidity and principle and refuses to allow his officers to do manual labor, citing the Geneva Convention. This winds up causing a power struggle between the Japanese colonel, who's Colonel Sato, and Colonel Nicholson. Eventually, Colonel Nicholson prevails, but his ego soon takes over and he loses sight of his principles and jeopardizes a dangerous mission undertaken by fellow British commandos. The novel, being a huge success, quickly makes it into the hands of Hollywood producer Sam Spiegel. Already a big name, having found success producing the Hepburn and Bogart vehicle, The African Queen, and the Marlon Brando classic On the Waterfront, Sam Spiegel is looking to continue his hot streak. Because of the acclaim and scale of the novel, a variety of massive directors are considered. Spiegel's fellow co-owner of production company Horizon Films, John Ford, is high on the list, as are Ben-Hur director William Wyler, Thing from Another World, and His Girl Friday, Everyman Howard Hawks, and Citizen Kane auteur Orson Welles, who was also offered an acting role. So who exactly could they find better for the job than any of these men? Well, 30 years earlier, across the pond, a young David Lean starts off his career as a T-boy at UK production house Gaumont Studios. After a one-month unpaid trial, his sheer enthusiasm lands him the role in earnest, and he's soon promoted to Clapperboy before ending up as the third assistant director. Next thing we know, he's editing newsreels, then feature films, and within 15 years, he's offered his first directing gig. His first few films are all adaptations of plays by famous playwright Noel Coward, the most notable of which, Brief Encounter, a romantic film about a, well, a brief encounter between a man and a woman, will go on to serve as inspiration for films like The Before Trilogy and Lost in Translation. Stepping up from Coward, Lean starts directing Dickens adaptations, doing both Great Expectations and Oliver Twist. His clout and respect in the UK are already immense and almost unprecedented. After a few more films, he gets enough movement behind him to make a film at least partially produced by Hollywood, with the colour romance film Summertime, 
starring Lean's self-proclaimed favourite actress, Catherine Hepburn. A mild Oscar success, this film lands him a Best Director nomination, perhaps providing him the standing required to have his name passed around at Sam Spiegel's office. Whether it's because it makes sense to have a native Englishman direct a film about British soldiers, or because he'd cost less than William Wyler, Lean ultimately gets the job. It's his first proper film in America, and his first film on this scale, so the pressure is high, and there's a sense of arms-folded scepticism from Sam Spiegel. So, a quarter of a century into his career, and having to prove himself all over again, Lean hits the ground running, trying to assemble the best possible cast for the film. Finding someone for the lead role of Colonel Nicholson proves difficult. David Lean's first pick is star Charles Lawton, who declines the role, presumably to star in Billy Wilder's Witness for the Prosecution. Forced to settle, he casts a British actor who'd made his debut in Lean's adaptation of Dickens' Great Expectations, the future Star Wars star Alec Guinness. Our guest, Wendy Whittick, describes Lean's relationship with Alec Guinness. <laughs> it's fractious. <laughs> fractious is how I would describe it. Difficult, contentious. David Lean really loved Alec Guinness as an actor, and Alec Guinness really loved David Lean as a director. But when they worked together, they really hated each other. And there was a lot of respect for each other, but David Lean was the kind of director that he was very auteur director. He wrote most of the screenplay. He directed, he did editing. He was very involved in the production. And he had in his mind when he was doing the screenplay, a visual of what he expected a scene to look like and what the characters were supposed to do. And that's what he wrote in the screenplay. So he wanted his actors to do what it said in the screenplay and to follow the screenplay. Well, Alec Guinness, you know, he's an actor. He said, I'm not sure why the character's acting this way. Why is the character doing this? Like actors will do, question what the, and I don't think the character would do this. And they would just fight and butt heads um, through all the production. But then at the end of production, especially at Bridge on the River Kwai specifically, um, after Alec would see the first cut of the film, he came back to David Lean and said, this is the best I've ever seen myself ever in any film. So it was very rewarding at the end, but they really couldn't get along at all. However, David Lean was superstitious about Alec Guinness. He seemed, he, I think he thought he was like a good luck charm because he would put him in all of his films, no matter how much they didn't get along. And when, even when he wasn't in a film, he was trying to get him in the film. The only one of the epics he doesn't appear in is Ryan's Daughter. And that's the film that was panned by critics. The role of the co-lead, a soldier named Shears, goes to Hollywood legend William Holden, who's just worked with Billy Wilder on Sunset Boulevard. Holden's deal is record-breaking, with the studio agreeing to pay him $300,000, plus 10% of the film's gross. With everyone cast and pre-production done, the time comes to start production. Instead of shooting on the Meiklong River itself, the shoot takes place in Ceylon, which will go on to be known as Sri Lanka. The production is a massive deal, 
as a bridge has to be blown up in the film's final act, and the crew get clearance from as high up as Ceylon's Prime Minister, who ends up attending the shoot in person to oversee the explosion of the bridge. Wendy Whittock explains the tumultuous production of the film in depth. So the production of the film was very difficult. Uh, They're in Ceylon, which is Sri Lanka. At the time, Ceylon, Sri Lanka was what it was called. It's very hot. It's very humid. You have all these people. There's they're kind of in a setup where they're not in a fancy air conditioned hotel. They're in this uncomfortable climate. And David Lean, he's a perfectionist, so he wants to get every shot perfect. So sometimes he has to wait for a cloud to be in the right place in the sky. He's very perfectionist like that. Now, the actors are very hot. It's very humid. The crew is very hot. Nobody wants to sit there and take 36 takes of waiting for a cloud to move in the sky, right? So people, they were getting very frustrated. Um, Again, he's fighting with Alec Guinness. Uh, He's fighting with some of the other British actors. They didn't really respect him as a director. um, He wasn't that acclaimed at this time because, again, he had just been more in British film. He wasn't like this worldwide known director. So they didn't have a lot of respect for him. So they didn't they kind of gave him a hard time. Um, He had a fight with his cinematographer, Jack Hildyard, who he'd worked with for numerous films and really liked. But Jack refused to stay after production for the day after the shooting and talk about more of the shooting and more of the cinematography. And David Lean got so angry about that, that he never used Jack in another film. Um, And then of course, Sam Spiegel was always on his case, trying to hurry him up, get him to keep with the production time, which he hadn't, that's another trouble David Lean had. He's so perfectionist that he couldn't keep in the production schedule. And Sam Spiegel, eventually, he had to rush some of the final scenes with William Holden because he had a contract and he had to be done by a certain time. So they had to get those scenes finished. So he had to rush a couple of the scenes. And then Sam Spiegel came and took the CinemaScope camera from David Lean and said, you're done. (laughs) And David Lean said, oh, no, I'm not. And he just continued to shoot on his own. He had an Aeroflex 35 millimeter camera and he just kept shooting with that (laughs) for like a couple of weeks. So, yeah, it it was a tough it was a tough shoot. But again, when everybody saw the film, everybody thought it was worth it. One other particularly notorious drama from the set involves Columbia Pictures threatening to shut down production for the better part of a month as they realized there were no white women in the film. Bludgeoned into it. Lean adds what he will go on to describe as a very terrible scene with William Holden and a nurse together at the beach. Post-production goes marginally better. While David Lean struggles to give up control and essentially edits the film over his editor's shoulder, the film comes together in time and releases to immense acclaim. Interestingly, it receives very mixed responses from real British-American prisoners of war. A lot of them feel that it portrayed things as a lot easier than they actually were, and that the POWs are depicted as far too willing to work on the construction of the railway. In reality, they did so only under the immediate threat of violence, and their conditions were substantially worse than depicted. Alongside this, 
Japanese audiences took a lot of issue with the film. The choice to name the key villain Colonel Saito after real-life soldier Sergeant Major Risaburo Saito was a controversial one. The real Saito was far from brutal and actually famous for his kindness towards his prisoners. After the war, his ex-prisoners wind up defending him in court against war crimes charges, and ultimately he makes friends with some of them. More broadly, issues are taken with how the Japanese soldiers are presented as stupid and requiring Western prisoners to engineer bridges for them, when in reality they were groundbreaking designers and experts in construction. Outside of these communities, however, the response is immensely positive. Classic Hollywood has always loved its epics, and this movie heralded the arrival of a new kind, taking maximum advantage of Cinemax widescreen technology. David Lean's reputation pivots very quickly from The Bridge on the River Kwai. Gone is the British workman adapting plays and novels and making intimate romances. Here is the director of awe-inspiring visual grandeur, of narratives that earn their three-hour runtime and take you on massive journeys throughout the world and throughout lifetimes. After this, David Lean will go on to make even more successful pictures on even larger scales. In particular, his adaptation of Boris Pasternak's Dr Zhivago and the Peter O'Toole starring Lawrence of Arabia. He becomes famed not only for the scale of these stories, but for his depth of visual metaphor, frequently finding ways to inject the frame with thematic resonance and feeling. The list of filmmakers who refer to David Lean as a key influence is about as long as the run length of his films, and includes everyone from Spike Lee to Guillermo del Toro to Steven Spielberg. The Bridge on the River Kwai, along with many of Lean's films, frequently appears on lists of the greatest films of all time. In 1999, it was included at number 11 on the British Film Institute's Top 100 British Films, behind Brief Encounter, Lawrence of Arabia and Great Expectations. The year earlier, it was included on the American Film Institute's 100 Years, 100 Movies list at number 13, again behind Lawrence of Arabia. Lean's personal legacy is somewhat more controversial than that of his films. His longtime co-writer and producer, Norman Spender, has gone on record as saying that Lean was a huge womaniser who had slept with almost a thousand women. Lean was married six times throughout his life. He had only one son, from whom he was completely estranged. In 1984, he was made a Knight of the British Empire. While maybe not by his family, David Lean has definitely assured that he'll never be forgotten. Wendy Whittock discusses the legacy of the Bridge on the River Kwai. What is a legacy exactly? Um, this is my thoughts that Bridge on the River Kwai was David Lean's first great epic film. 
And it's one of the first epics to be shot with the CinemaScope widescreen process. So that was really important too. And the film marries beautiful cinematic artistry with action and adventure. And it's often considered among the best films and was considered influential to future directors in combining that art and entertainment aspect. So I think that's the like, I mean, they're, it's just the legacy of David Lean, these beautiful visuals. Um, any of his epics are, are going to have these beautiful visuals, but Bridge on the River Kwai was the first. So I think that this just came out and everybody was so amazed and so astonished and they'd never really seen a film like this before. And that's what uh, started the whole David Lean movement. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. Sincere thanks to movie historian and classic film blogger Wendy Whittick for lending us her expertise on David Lean for this episode. We highly recommend you check out her blog at whoismontgomeryclift.com. Wendy's presentation, David Lean, Formula of a Masterpiece, goes into great depth on his work and is a great watch. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Jack McGee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song when we look into the 1958 Lebanon crisis and the involvement of the United States military. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com. That's nzpodz.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us to share this project with more listeners. So please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.